0: Tight Zone World. Episode 51. Featuring Jimmy McMillan. Let's go in. (sighs) Tight Zone World. My guest this week is Jimmy McMillan of Friends Records. If you don't know Friends Records, check out friendsrecordsbaltimore.com They put out a lot of really good shit in a real small period of time and it's definitely worth delving into I would say. Uh, One announcement before we begin just a reminder that this awesome show is going down in two weeks. Holy Ghost Party myself 83 Cutlass Frogman, Old Self, and Eric Lamb. It's all happening at the Wind Up Space on August 7th. The art this week, as always, by my man Mike Riley. Check him out at MikeRileyComics.com. And we're being hosted by Splice Today. Check out SpliceToday.com. Let's go Let's go, go in. in.
1: Uh, I grew up till I was six in Glen Burnie um, Behind the Wonder Bread on Furnace Branch Road Learned how to ride a bike there And then we moved to Marriott'sville I went to Resurrection in Ellicott City And spent a lot of my free time in Columbia and in old Ellicott City Got all my best friends out of Columbia Um, Went to Mount St. Joe for high school And that's where I started to meet all these dudes that went to Catonsville High And hanging out with Catonsville people who were the Catonsville people at that time? Mark Cadell, John McAdams. Um, they were the two, like, main ones. A bunch of people who got kicked out of St. Joe that went to Catonsville after they got kicked out. It was, oh, like, okay. um, Chris Bolton, uh, who was in Juice. They were they a band back in the mm. day. And oh, I forget the guy's name that was in Mustard Seed Magic that went to my school. But they were, like, my favorite local band back in the day. And I remember going to see them, like, at... 14 and 15 also columbia bands there's um my favorite was this group called the hindered and that was uh chris dunn and brian dunn who are still artists and musicians in baltimore and these two guys mark ray who lives on the west coast now plays with like you're the dragon but he's also played with mandrill and a bunch of great funk bands over the years um he's gone on to do some cool things the biggest person to come out of there was uh, dave Siddick from akameli yeah um so I used to go see how these bands play at this place called The Barn in Columbia it was like an all ages underground there's underground as you can get in Columbia, Maryland I guess spot and my friends would come from Mount St. Joe area all out there to play and I thought it was really cool that I could hang out with them like before they played and talk to them about what songs they were going to play and then to go out to the audience and tell people like dude wait wait to see what comes out because they're going to open up with this song <laughs> it's like the best song you've ever heard and, um,
2: and and like what is it like The Barn like it's like an like a, it's all like a, a community years. center. Yeah. They would,
1: like, kids have shows. And it was, like, an all ages thing. They would get, like, four or five bands to play. Yeah. And it was, like, House of Plaid, which is a... They're all people I just knew from high school. Like, I think of them as, as bigger local bands back then, but... I mean, I couldn't name a local band from Columbia right now. If I tried, I'm sure there's dozens of them. But that's kind of... It's kind of
2: fascinating, because it's, like... it's It does seem like... Like a cultural It happens dead zone now. Or or it does, it does yeah. to me.
1: But I'm sure all those high schools, they've got nine or twelve high schools in Howard County now, they all have a dozen bands in each one and yeah. they all play shows every weekend. I'm sure there's a lot of sublime covers. Right. But um but, but it sounds like there of, wasn't a there sub- wasn't. Lot it, they, everything I went and saw was all originals. Yeah. The hindered were my big ones because they were my friends. I taught Chris Dunn's little brother, Brian, how to paint. And in exchange, Chris gave me my first ever guitar lessons. And nice. through that, we became friends, and I started to like work with him and and that I would sell their tapes for him every time I go to Columbia Mall, which was like every day after school. I'd take a case of tapes with me and I'd walk around to all the like moms and grandmoms in the smoking sections when, where you couldn't like walk away from somebody trying to sell you something i'd get people in line at the food court like have you heard them they're from columbia they're really good they recorded this like right down the street (laughs) you should really get a copy it's only five bucks and i would sell like rows of their tapes every night um i left saint joan i went to mount hebrim a couple really good bands there but after that i really stopped i used to the only band i would go see was this band pinfold um I saw them probably like 50 times. They were like Whoa. 50% covers, 50% originals. Okay. Um, but they were a great live band. They were all really good friends. Right. The... Sorry to interrupt. No, no, please. I do
2: have to ask, because they've been mentioned several times on the really? podcast. Not them, uh, Mustard Seed Magic. Oh, yeah, yeah. What, like, what What were they?
1: They were like funk, psychedelic funk rock, kind of like a more drugged out Chili Peppers, like a slowed down Chili Peppers. Yeah. I actually just recently got a digital copy of the old tape that I had oh, way cool. back in the day. Um, they were like sloppy psychedelic rock with like a funk edge.
2: Yeah, they were cool. Yeah,
1: they were, it was like Sly and the Family Stone being done by like white teenagers. Cool. Um, but yeah, they they were good. Um, and you were saying with Pinfold. So. Pinfold was a band where I really just enjoyed the culture. I would hang out with them. when there was no show, just go to practices and sit on the steps and watch them play, And They'd let me into that world of watching them like write songs got fascinated with that at the same time brian ian goldstein um ian who's part of the label they had a band called evolve and i worked with their keyboardist john Jensen, and, and i would go see them play and we ended up hanging out a lot i'd go to the band practices and i would started like offering up advice and then when they came with a cd i did the same thing at this point i was 24 25 but i'm like a grown man going around trying to sell strangers cds and wasn't the same, but Still I became there. Uh, <laughs> not at the mall shows and stuff. I actually would employ like their younger brothers and stuff to go around and sell their CDs for me because I thought it was much charming, much more charming, coming from like a little kid. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we sold a good bit of CDs. We had a lot of fun, and I managed them for like th- two or three years. It was my first time managing a band. Yeah. But it was also the worst job I've ever had in my whole life. Was just being rejected by. Uh, by club owners and and venues over and over and over trying to book them shows with just a series of disappointments and i'm the kind of guy that does not like giving bad news i only like to give people good news right so every week when i would i would have every monday off work and i would try for everything i'd spend the whole day doing emails and phone calls for them and then we would meet up when i think it was wednesday night and i would go over anything that i got for them and every wednesday night it was just like a nothing. Like, sorry, I tried for 12 hours, and all I get back is people who want to do pay-to-play shows and, like, yeah, there's nothing you should be doing. Right, right. Um, and that band fell apart, and I ended up at Soundgarden. And through doing consignment at Soundgarden for, like, 10 years, I got to know a lot of the local bands. I'd already gone to shows a lot. I knew, I peripherally knew people But that was really when, that was 2005, was when I really started spending a lot of time in the scene and getting to know people, and started taking interest in what people were doing. Um, That's really my experiences in that, I mean, there's 22 years of working in a record store where... It's I love telling people what to listen to. I, yeah. When I was really young, when I was like 20 or something, I had this kid come in. You could just tell he was like super bummed out. And I was like, what are you looking for? He's like, I don't even know. And I was like, well, what do you like? Mm-hmm. He says, I really like... Uh, what did he like? Uh, he liked Smashing Pumpkins and Afghan Wigs for his two bands. And I was like, That's have you heard Hum? And I gave him a copy of You'd Prefer an Astronaut. That that dude still comes in my stores. Like, he still seeks me out to be like, what should I be listening to? Um, Even the three years that I spent not working in record stores, I still would call my friends, like, every week, and be like, hey, have you heard? Did you get? and just couldn't stop trying to sell people records. I love talking about music. Um, And that's, it's all, it's all part of the same thing to me. It's all, like, one growing ladder leading towards some final destination. But, uh.
2: I, really, I feel like you're kind of like a rare kind of dude in that you're kind of like the opposite of like the guys in like the movie High Fidelity kind I, of records. Yeah, that <laughs> stuff
1: is all that's not what it's really like. There's a joke, and it's not really a joke, it's a real thing that happens at the Soundgarden. When you get hired there, you have to go meet with the owner, and one of the first things he'll say to you is, he says, this is not high-fidelity, this is not Empire Records, we work here. Like, we do, right, work, right, we right. do it for real, and we don't have time for the bullshit. We do. We have a lot of fun time doing bullshit around there. It's like, the reason I'm there is I have yeah. a blast working there. I work with amazing people. We laugh all day, but we get a ton of work done, and we do it for good reasons. But yeah, I guess I
2: think people almost feel like the people at the record store there to judge them or right. something
1: i mean i did i used to shop there before i worked there and i stopped going there for a couple of years because the girl and god bless her heart liz felber used to stand at the register every night and she was evil she would pick apart whatever you brought up to her remember i came in and bought a smashing pumpkins adore cd like the day before it came out they'd sell stuff early and she like got it and she, like I threw it on the table. I was like, you're "Buying this bullshit? You know what it sounds like? It sounds like shit." I'm just like, "Are you? Re- I'm so excited for this yeah. album, and you're just here to like bash me because you you love social distortion, um, right? Right?" And that turned me off. You know, that's I, I don't like the snobbery of it.
2: So you you always liked working in these record stores. I did. I love the people
1: yeah. I work with, and more importantly, I like the customers. I have yeah. a regular crew of customers that come through pretty much every week and ask me what to buy, and half the time I don't know what to tell them because I'm usually listening to Friends Records stuff that hasn't come out yet or it's demos by whoever, it's un- it's solicited stuff. I listen to everything that anybody sends me for Friends Records. Yeah. I have a long drive to and from work, and, and so when somebody asks me what I'm listening to, I'm like, I've been stuck on this Soul Glimpse record for like three months. Like, who's Soul Glimpse? like, oh, it's... uh guy in his basement in Frederick <laughs> nothing <laughs> we don't have anything behind it. um, yeah it's it's just uh, it's hard like that but there's still plenty of good music and, and just getting to know people and know what they like I imagine it's the same for anybody who sells wine and loves selling wine they know what their individual customers like so when I see a record come through, that I'm like, oh man, Craig's gonna love that. And next time I see Craig coming, I'm like, did you check that out? Yeah. And that's enough for him to come back to me for like another year or two asking me, because he's chasing that same dragon of finding the good shit that you can't just like walk in and grab. You have to be told about or dig for it or really find it. But that's, I love turning people on to shit that makes them feel something. And some music, it's a cliche thing, but music saves lives and it saved mine. Definitely got yeah. like, my roughest times. And I owe my whole life to it, um, and that's to be able to give people stuff like that. Oh yeah. That that's I don't know, super rewarding for me. I, pay is not good; it's retail work. Nobody works there for the money, um, but it's rewarding in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Did you have an idea back then
2: that, like, all this time would would lead to something else?
1: Um, I did. I always felt like it was accumulating and like building up. Um, and every time I tried something new, remember when I started managing Evolve, um, That it, and that was 2001, uh-huh. that it was like, oh, wow, I'm taking the next step in this. I'm really, like, putting a foot forward into this world, and I'm going to make an effort out of this. It was just such a disappointing step that I didn't try it again, uh, really, until Brett Yale called me. Um, mm. It was a, It was pretty disheartening, but that was a completely different world. They were... Again, they were like a 50% covers band that were trying to be booked at like the Hard Rock Cafe and, you know, weird shows that that bands that I work with now would never want to play. They
2: don't know
1: that world. Um, And it's weird. We have a city with all these different worlds that it's very, as much as we think the Baltimore sound is everything, it's very much um, clicky. there's, There's a lot of groups of people and there's like the 98 Rock Noise in the Basement crew that they have like their own built-in audience, and they play in the hard rock and at Auto and at Sonar or whatever it's called, or Ram's Head. They, they do all their stuff, and nobody from the the hip-hop like community goes into that. And just in the past few years, I've noticed a lot more blending between like the hip-hop community and the like alternative college oh, yeah. rock totally. thing that's been going on in Baltimore. And that's really cool. Um, but there's a whole bluegrass scene going on in Baltimore that like never participates, or is never really invited to participate, in what <laughs> goes on at the Crown, or at the Windup, or at the Metro. Um, they have their own spots, and it's neat to walk in on that world on accident one day and, and see it all. I did it back around Christmas. I'm, I went to have a meeting at the Crown on a Monday, and they were closed. It's like 5pm. So I go around the corner of the Windup, and I walk in, and it's packed, and there's somebody on stage playing country music, and guy at the door is like 12 bucks. And I was like, pfft. I'm just meeting somebody for a drink, but what's going on? It's 5 yeah. p.m. and you have a packed house at the windup. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, man, it's like the older people are really into this, like this country thing that's going on. So we have these early shows for them. That's amazing that like you, you let that in and you have another show tonight at like nine o'clock and nobody will be the wiser. Right. Right. With like 30 people standing around watching what we consider really interesting or lively, right. here and the, you won't have it there, but at least that venue can survive because they, they, diversify like that but that gave me the idea for matinee shows i'm 40 i have a lot of friends who are 40 now and we all want matinee shows i want a show to be over by like nine o'clock ten o'clock i would catch, be a hundred percent i mean there's other people it. who yeah. are like real big in this city that are into that too yeah and that's what it takes it takes the headliners it takes somebody like dan or somebody to go on at 8 p.m instead of pushing it to 11 or 12 i, I talked to him about it he's the one who who Gave me the idea a couple of years ago, because uh, Tim Cabera, he was like, "Man, I really want to do this show," but like, Tim can't even go because it's so late. We, we were both complaining that like, if you have a job the next day, like when you're a responsible adult, it really sucks to to not be able to, to stand around a show from eight o'clock till eleven o'clock and not yeah. see the person you came for and have to leave. Yeah. And I was like, "You're the one that has to play, fucking six p.m. If you want to." People will come just to see you, and yeah. then they stay for the rest of it, or they see the rest of it before. Um, I hope we do more of that. I like the nightlife. I like the boogie. Yeah. But um, I'd like to see some earlier shows in this town.
2: Yeah, I, I feel like I'm a night owl, for yeah. sure. Same. But I would rather see a show early than do whatever else I want at yep. night. Bars of, like, can still operate after, yeah. the,
1: after the show, or yeah. I'm sure half the crowd will leave, but... um. But, you know, you extend your hours. Instead of the bar opening up at 5 o'clock and getting busy at 7, the bar would open up at 3 and get busy at 5. And then you still have your hours on the back end to to sell whatever you want to sell.
2: Yeah. Let's get it going.
1: I agree. Um, we should work on that in 2015. But, um, so
2: so when Brett... What did Brett call you about, exactly? Um, he
1: was doing Be More Musically Informed at the time. Right. It was a Baltimore music blog that was pretty successful. And he was on the roof of the Future Islands house on Preston Street interviewing them for his blog, and they drank a bunch. And one of them said, we'd really like to put out a split seven-inch with our friends from college, Lonnie Walker. And Brett was just like, I'll do it. (laughs) And he had never put out a record or anything before. And the next day... He called I think he called Ian O'Brien and they're called Jimmy and I knew him peripherally. He was friends with the guys who were involved, the band that I managed. So we were always at shows together. We knew each other through other friends, but we had never really had any real talking. And he called me and asked me and I immediately pointed him at this guy named Matt D Beck, who runs Shadowply Records in Northern Virginia. He put out like the PC worship stuff. He put oh, out some really okay. cool stuff. Yeah. At the time he was on fire. Um And I immediately was like, oh, yeah, call my friend Matt in Virginia. That's what he does. He'll help you out. And he called Matt. And the way Matt tells it, Matt's like, yeah, he called me. And I told him I would do it. I would love to do it. But even more, I would love for you to do it. I was like, call Jimmy back and make Jimmy do it because he'd be really good at it. And Brett called me back. And we met three times in the month of December in 2009, um, all at the Morning Edition, which used to be over on Patterson Park. And it was only open like two days a week, but man, they had the best food and the best like ambience. Um, First meeting, we talked about how Matt told him to talk to me, and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm sure I could figure it out, but what would we put out? Just a future island 7-inch? I said, we'll come to the next meeting with more ideas, and we'll each pick a record. So we came to the next meeting, we talked money, we talked about what we had to put into it, and... I wanted to put out the Sri Aurobindo record, and he wanted to put out the Weekend's record, which is nice. awesome for me. I love those guys already. Yeah. But um, we decided we put out three records. At a third meeting, we decided on a name. Um, it was originally a Lungfish reference that was ridiculously long. It was like Friends and Friends of Friends in End Times was the name of the <laughs> label at first. And then we shortened it to Friends and Friends of Friends. And then it was just Friends of Friends... And then we decided on friends.
2: Mm.
1: Thank God. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and that was it. Uh, right before Christmas, uh, we shook hands on it and started it. And then within a week, because I know I was driving to Ocean City for New Year's, I had Bed of Seeds playing in my CD player on the drive to the beach. Or no, no, no. He sent it to me while I was down there that week. And I had to drive around like War Drive looking for Wi-Fi. Uh, and found some hotel with like an open thing so I could download the songs <laughs> for Bed of Seeds, and I like laid on my bed down Ocean City with headphones on, listening to that record while I was down there. Um, the Weekends record was recorded by Neil Sandesgiri, and that was our first thing. So the Future on the seven inch we knew was off a little ways in production right away, and we had to consider a fourth record, which was your record. Um, but we had to deal with the Weekends record, which was recorded. I love Neil, but it was recorded with two microphones in a practice space and it sounded pretty like cluttered and jumbled together. Right, I think right. he does amazing things and I think he was really feeling himself out with that. But uh, we took it to Rob Girardi and asked him what he would do with it and he, he did the production. He re-recorded the record by playing it through amps and re-recording it. They didn't want to re-record the songs. So the record's still the original recording, just kind of like remixed or remastered by yeah. Rob. Yeah. But at the time he gave me the television hill record it was like if you're putting records out you need to hear this i fell in love with that record i jumped on that mark was in micro kingdom and as soon as they had a record together i was like we'll put that out um and things started to move along really quickly i worked with beth varden and told her we'd put out the violet hour record when they had it together and through working with future islands on the seven inch got to know garrett really well and we started to put out all the moss stuff and when waiting was ready we put that out on lp yeah Uh, The one big thing that happened for us was after a year of being a label, Brett had apparently, since we started, like day one, been writing The Celebration, who he's a huge fan of. They had been releasing their album, a song at a time. Every month for a year they released a song uh, and a video. They got through like six or seven of them until before they approached us, but they had this concept of no physical product. They didn't want to make CDs, and they were trying this new way of putting music out. And Brett was writing to them saying, hey, when you're finished putting all these songs out, if you want to put them on a record, we put out records. Like, we would love to put your record out. And one night, they wrote him, and we're like, hey, can you come over tonight, 10 o'clock? Weird. Okay. I still remember we pulled up and we sat out front, and we we're like, we're getting ready to walk into pretty much strangers' house. I knew Dave Bergender a little bit, um, but we didn't know the rest of them at all. And we were like, do we want to do that? Do we want to work with somebody that like we're not friends with or that we don't know? Are we going to... Like, running to strangers is, like, the end of the good times. And we walked out of there with, like, a group of new friends and, like, yeah. reaffirmed, like, how much I love this city and how connected everybody is because everybody was kind of connected to other projects that we were already working on or working with. um, And we went to work on that record, and that got us a lot of exposure. um, And it brought a lot of attention to weekends and to... We put out the Soft Cat tape early. That did a lot for us. But they, everybody, really reacted from the celebration. You could see through the listens and the plays and the sales on everything else that when people were coming to our site for the celebration record, they were checking out everything else. Yeah. Um. That that was the most important part of working with them. Was and and they're aware of that, and we were aware of it. But um, that was that was real big for us. The other real big part was for the first two years, Brett didn't work. He just stayed home and tweeted all day. We had like this social media following that we're still riding the wave of huh i think i've tweeted like maybe 10 times in the past three years whereas he was like multiple times a day he ran our facebook or tumblr or twitter
2: what and do you what do you write on twitter when you write all day just everything that's every going on? little
1: like here's a new song from oh i just heard the demo of this here's right, an right, right. idea for the cover of this and yeah keep people's interest in it like Twitter's one of those things where it's really short attention span theater Yeah. where as soon as something scrolls out of your point of view you forget it so if you can keep hammering it all day like it'll just stick in people's minds and they'll be interested in it um, and he really built a lot of interest in us we have people all over the country that buy our stuff automatically or write to me about like when is I don't know Murder gonna put on a new record I'm like Murder hasn't been a band for, like, three years. Yeah. But I guess you wouldn't have known that, because we never really did much besides, like, put their tape up. Um, it's amazing how much support we still have from that. Like, we're riding this great wave of press still that happened years ago. Yeah. Um, but I don't know what he did. I just know he did it really well, because he works for Twitter now. Um, like, Brett does? Yeah, it's his full-time job. He's, That's like, crazy. the head of sales organization. I don't know. He was just in town the other night. He looked great. He's got a great job. He's got a great girlfriend. Tight. Super jealous. No. Um, <laughs> he he really... He, he's doing exactly what he should be doing. I'm real proud of him. Yeah. Um, but he's been gone from the label for about three and a half years now. Um, he left after a year and nine months of doing it. He moved out to Seattle. And it became just a one-man operation. And for a while um i didn't want to put out any new bands i didn't have that social media thing I didn't have any kind of press i felt like i could only put out things by established people who were already touring um they would do future island side projects jen wasner seven inch um anybody that was already semi-established was like the goal right and then right. there was talk of reissues of like old bands whose albums never came out there are a couple really cool records from the late 90s from ACR Studios that I started to get my hands on. Like like which ones? Uh, the third Ink record which is really oh, cool. good. A Haberdasher 7-inch that Mark recorded that's so good.
2: That never came out? Never came that's out. That's crazy.
1: Um, what are the songs called? Mountain King and... oh no, no. St. James and Mountain Sex I think are the two songs. Yeah. But uh, they were great. Um, one of the records ended up coming out which was the Lungfish record that... Uh, Somebody put out just a couple of years ago that ACR 1999 record. Oh, okay, like there, another label right? ended up. It. Uh, Love Life, which was before they were Celebration, yeah. and after they were Jacks, they were Love Life. Yeah. And they originally recorded their album at ACR with um, Craig Bowen. Um, what was I saying about him, though? Oh, that he he right, recorded he, these are that. all records that yeah. he had recorded at ACR. He, Celebration before they were Celebration or Love Life, and they had originally recorded this record with him, that it they eventually re-recorded parts of it and put it out. But the original version of it's really unique. I had about four records from this certain era, from this yeah. certain studio. And I was real interested in doing that. And I realized, like, the whole reason for Friends Records was to, like, help these bands that, like, that needed help. It was, in, in the 20 years that I worked in record stores, I worked with a lot of people who are musicians and who got record deals or they got you know some sort of attention, they got real excited about it. And at the end of the day, they either got screwed over and never got their record put out or got their record put out to the point where they never even got a copy, never got paid for it, yeah, never get any support. Um, just a long, long 15 years of stories of people getting screwed over in the record industry, right, even right. like a small local level. So my main motivation for doing it was, like, I could put out my friend's records and not screw them over and, like, actually just get them records. And, like, yeah. that was the idea behind it was, like, I think we can do that. Um, So I really wanted to start working with new bands again. So,
2: the yeah, did you ultimately decide, like, the nah, reissue? the reissues or...
1: idea is scrapped for It's, it's yeah. just on a back burner for now for one day if I really have nothing else to put out. <laughs> Right, um, right. Which, th- that's a terrible thing to say, but it, th- until there's a purpose for it. Did you,
2: whole... I mean, did you feel like the point of doing it was to, there would be this automatic kind of interest or something? No, I you did know, it because or... I
1: knew that, like, there was at least a built-in audience for it, and it would, it would, has its own story built into it. I yeah. wouldn't have to, like create this band story not really make it up but like sell something to somebody i'd just be able to drop like the names on it and people would automatically give it respect yeah um and started working with new bands again and i think two years ago we put out like 28 releases last year i put out like 24 yeah this year i'm a little slow this year it's like 12 i think or 13 at this point and there's there's a couple of real good things slated for the end of the year and for the fall. Um but it's changing. Like Friends yeah. Records is it's still gonna do. It's still gonna be putting out, you know, Dave Adams banging on a ceramic plate and any yes. band that I love of there's no guidelines to like why well, I had somebody compliment me on it. They're like, You're not afraid to put out left field stuff, you're not afraid to put out weird stuff and I'm like it's not like micro kingdom to me is not weird i hear i hear all kinds of great things when i hear micro kingdom and i'm taking some people to see them who are just like i don't get it and i'm like well then you don't get it it's not your thing but it music is such a personal thing and you you either attach to certain things or you don't certain bands will play a certain note that is just bad to your ears right um, right but there's no left field and right field for me when it comes to deciding what to put out i don't i don't judge it on well, only certain number of people are really going to be interested in this piece. That's not like an interest of mine. It's is it good music, and should it be kind of archived in this thing? Yeah. <clears throat> which is where I'm at now with it. Which is kind of a what I did for the past two years and for this year is almost more of like a field recording thing, where I'm taking exactly what the band wants me to put out with their exact artwork, and I'm just documenting it. I'm putting it in a package and yeah. I'm putting it out so that there's like a record of it. Um, I don't want to influence it. I, I, I want it to be a clear representation of what's going on. There's so much good stuff going on at this town. Um, so many people doing it right. And every day there's a new band popping up. And you know, one out of every month worth of new bands sticks around. Yeah. But there's always something new to hear. I don't know if it's because... Micah constantly repopulates our city with, like, really creative kids and young people. I think that's a lot of it. I think that's a lot of it. It's just, like, a spark that keeps going. Um, But uh, there's an endless supply of of people to work with in this town. I'm just trying to capture as many as I can with the resources that I have. Um, As much as I like teaching the artists how to put out records and do it themselves, and when I see them do it themselves, it makes me even happier... I really have always wanted somebody to come along or or multiple people to come along and be like, how do you start a record label? And show people that it's not hard at all. Right. There really hasn't been like an outbreak of record labels in this town. Um, We did it because of Fan Death. I'd watched Fan Death a year before when they started up, which was Chris Berry and Sean Gray. And they had 12 months, 12 releases. They were all limited. They sold out of everything. I watched them do it. I worked with Chris at the time. And it was really inspiring of like well you can be a boutique label and and just survive to have your uh, we were never in it to make money we just wanted it to feed itself so right. we wouldn't have to keep dumping money into it that like the money would keep rolling over so we could keep making new projects with it. and that's the way it's been for years now that's awesome haven't had to invest it's just been self-sufficient um which makes putting out those Projects weird, putting out reissues or putting out like a soundtrack. We had a proposal for a pretty high-profile soundtrack, and, and at the end of the day, it was like, well, it doesn't benefit anybody. Nobody can take this on tour, or nobody can take it to like a, a bigger record label and be like, look what we did. Yeah, and really, it's like a self-serving kind of a project. Yeah. Um, so the the goal is to really help people to give them that physical piece to take and get to the next step with. Um, that's that's where it's been at for a while now. Did
2: changing up the format a little bit, like, help make that possible? Like, like being like, we're doing these tapes, and the, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so, no, it's yeah. been a
1: lot of tapes. I made a rule for myself um, after doing the Art Lord and the Snails and the Secret Mountains records and the Flock of Dimes records all at the same time, yeah, trying to coordinate four records that were all pretty unique and to also work a full-time job and help out with the tours and stuff like that it became uh it became too much so i decided i would only put out one record at a time and unfortunately the micro kingdom record took like a year and a half so between this uh celebration seven inch from two decembers ago to this past february there's a long lull of no vinyl and a ton of tapes um i like the tape format not crazy about the sound on it it works for some bands it doesn't work for others right but it's all about the digital download that comes inside it's the it's any way you can push music on people i know we've had this conversation before yeah. but some of the more interesting things i've seen I'm, of montreal put out a new record a couple years ago and we opened up the box for it and it's fucking lampshades oh yeah <laughs> and like i forget what else they had there were like three things they were selling one was like framed art one was a lampshade and another was like a piece of clothing but all of them had these tags on them that had the download on it. So yeah. you could spend $15 and get the CD, or $15 and get the LP, or you could spend $15 and get a lampshade and still get the album. Did it's people like, buy it? People bought the shit out of the lampshades. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had bought one. They were really cool. <laughs> um, and then the same thing still happens. Julian Casablanca just put his record out on a... Bic lighter case USB stick so it's like a steel case for your Bic lighter that says yeah. Julian Casablancas in the voids and you pop the bottom off and it's a 16 gig stick with his new video and his album on it in like a couple different formats and it's just like oh any way you can put music into people's hands that's what the cassettes represent to me I'm I'm pretty sure 80% of the tapes that I sell never get played that they're right, being used right. for the download card. I can see yeah. the download usage, and, and a good percentage of them get used. Um, and that's what it is. It's a vessel to just get the music to people, yeah. usually in a digital format, because that's what kind of an age we're living in. Yeah. Everybody just wants to put it on their phone or their iPod, um, which is fine. I love vinyl. I, I wish everybody bought records. I wish everything came out on record. Yeah. But at the same time, um, I just want people to listen to it. I don't care if they don't pay for it. I don't care if they pay extra for it. Just listen to it. I'm confident in just about everything that we've put out that if people would just listen to it, it would it would like take over. Just spread it. Mm. And there's there's I hear it and I play everything we've put out i play played into my car for my friends and for associates and whoever and everybody always freaks out over now there's no way this is from baltimore how come i've never heard this how come you know people don't record more albums with this guy who recorded this album because this record sounds right, right Right. just like man it's, that's the mystery um yeah and i know that this goes on in every town it goes on in columbia maryland so i know it goes on in like some small town in illinois and somewhere in montana yeah and all over california every town's got their own scene going on and they're all really special to the people in that town but Baltimore's got something different and it's it's it just won't go out. It's been for for like fifteen or more years now that it won't go out. Yeah. It was real embarrassing in the eighties and nineties, um, with hair metal in Baltimore. Um, we were notorious for like kicks and I love her to death. But Joan Jett, she's great though. I gotta say, kicks yeah. stand up. They are right, they're good, they're cool kids. Um they came through my st- through the sound garden a couple months ago to do an in-store and I thought it was going to be like a joke and nobody would show up and like 500 people showed up. They're still like
2: huge I was yeah. dressed
1: for like the concert in 1985. right. They were right, like 50 right. year olds in spandex at my store, but they they they're, we listened to their record like 10 times that day. We had to listen to it on repeat while they were there. It's not a bad record. Yeah, they cut a good record. Have you ever heard Cool Kids? I have. It's, I like that album. When a I lot. was a kid, man, I love yeah. that record. I have a lot of I have a hard time listening to old hip hop in any way that's not or old old rock, hair metal particularly. Yeah. That isn't in a nostalgic way. I spent a short period of my life really into hair metal. Like I had been into Iron Maiden and Judas Priest as like um like a seven to eleven year old or twelve year old. But for my twelfth birthday or my thirteenth birthday I my 11th birthday it was december 1985 my brother took me to my first real concert he took me to see bon jovi at the baltimore arena and i i'd gotten their tape like three days before i didn't know much about him it was slippery when wet and i watched them control this crowd and they would do like a song and they'd divide the audience of this arena in half and one side would be john bon jovi and the other side would be richie sambora and they would do the chorus, and John Bon Jovi would sing it and have the crowd sing it back, and Richie Sambora would play it on his guitar and have the crowd like sing it back. And they took turns, they got these sides to go so loud. And I wasn't singing along, I was just watching. And I was like, whoa, you can control like thousands of people with a microphone <laughs> and a guitar. Like This is crazy. Um, so I got into some hair metal. I got into yeah. Bon Jovi and Cinderella and Def Leppard. And right up until 87 or 88, I heard Jane's Addiction for the first time. And it completely threw me off course from where I was headed. I was heading in, like, the Kicks, Hammerjacks reunion show direction. Right, right, right. And I had had my dad and my mom split up when I was six, and I'd never dealt with it properly. So when I heard had a dad, I was like, oh, shit, he's Mm -hmm. talking about me. It's not like trying to get laid in the backseat. It's like you're fucked up because your dad wasn't around. Deal with it. Oh, this is real. This is, like, what I listen to music for. And that's the stuff that, like it got me through some rough shit. Um
2: yeah, that was well, I guess without revealing other projects that we were going on about earlier, what like what uh, what do you see for like friends in the
1: future? You'd... Um I see friends growing. I know friends is going to stay the same for a little while. Going to continue to put out weird stuff and yeah. popular stuff and, and really anything that I, I consider good and like it's other people it's really a popular opinion label um a lot of people who know me will tell you i have no shit filter like i still love peter Cetera. um i'll play that every day i played pure moods in the store today but when it comes to anything i've put out on friends i run it through people first i get them in my car i have some people whose opinions i hold way higher than others And I'll only take the most extreme stuff to them to hear the worst criticism. I don't want to name names, but, like, Mark Miller. He's, like, my go-to, like, end of the road. I think that's a good shit filter. (laughs) I do, too. But I basically, I just, I have the personality that I want everybody to like everything. Yeah. And I run it by him first to make sure everybody likes it. Let me put it out. Um, I've, uh... With friends it'll it'll grow. I have a new project coming up. Yeah. Um and it's a it's a new idea and through that I think friends is gonna it's gonna benefit from it.
2: Yeah. Is there like a Zen aspect to like doing all these tapes? Like I was thinking about like the day that we were working on the round the robin. robin. Tape yeah. I felt like it was like a window into your life. You're just like like, we're hitting
1: up this Kinko's. Like, this Kinko's is awesome. I go to this Kinko's every day. <laughs> like, I do. It's a, it's a, I love doing it. I used yeah. to, I th- I, again, I think I told you about it, but I used to play video games a lot. I used to sit in my basement in front of my TV and I played Skyrim back when Skyrim, that was the last video game I played. Before that, it was every Grand Theft Auto, any kind of, any game really, I would play until I finished it and I'd talk about it with my friends at work had to get all the achievements and like every assassin's creed game i would get the book and look up where all the flags are and there's a hundred of them and one night i was sitting there playing skyrim and i got some crazy achievement i was super happy and i was like wait a minute this doesn't benefit anybody outside of like my head like that's only like a very personal achievement and that it doesn't matter to anybody else in the world that i just unlocked a trophy Right, right um and i was like i and i i paused it and i had like 160 hours in the game I was like, "Fuck!" I played this for 160 hours. Like, what else could I do with my hands? Like, I can just stare at TV and watch movies or TV because I I love movies. But like, I can do something with my hands that'll like be worthwhile. Yeah. And uh, that was a big motivation for the label too. Was like doing something creative that benefits other people outside of my head and like to do something to contribute. Um, That's I love making tapes because there's there's a method to it. I've kind of figured out all my resources for it. And uh, I've got it down to like, it is. It's a little bit like ritualistic when I when I sit down to make them. I, I have to get in the right mood and go to it, and I just like turn them out, and anywhere from a hundred to like eight hundred at a time. Yeah. Um, I like to make them. One of the best times I had was when we did the six of albums on cassette. Did six hundred of them. There was a tape fair that Lexi Mountain threw at Windup Space, and uh, I brought out the tape dubber. And sat there and ripped them all off for hours While people just came by and looked at all of our tapes for sale and our records But then like, watch me with this tape machine Like, what are you doing? I'm putting stickers on and I'm folding all the things I'm putting them in the cases and I'm putting the tapes in And there were people that were like waiting around For like the first one to come off of every album There was this like, I don't know He was definitely a tourist But he was so into it He stood there the entire time And I would make a hundred of each album at a time and he wanted the first one out of the top left corner of everyone to come out, and he wanted to be handed that copy as it was made. Yeah. Was like, Dude, what is going on here? So now I take those copies really seriously. In my head, I'm like, that's number one in that top left corner, because that tourist guy waited for that one. To me, that's, that's the important one. But um, there is, it's the same way with records. I, I like it to be a group thing when it can be a group thing. That was the whole idea, was people would get together, the band and the label, and Friends or whoever wanted to come over, we would put on bad 80s movies and listen to music in, in the other part of the room and we would just put records together. One half of the room would be putting stickers on stuff, the other half would be making download cards and assembling. And at the end of the day, everything would come together. Yeah, a lot of the times it's just me. My wife helps a whole lot, she makes most of the download cards. Oh, nice. there's been something like 14,000 tapes made at this point. Holy shit! Um, and she's done like at least ten thousand of the download cards. So bless her. But uh, and my son's made a bunch. But it's nice. it's kind of like it's it's like a video game for me. It's like <laughs> I unlock all these achievements by finishing these records. <laughs> and it's kind of the same thing. That's awesome. Well, cool, man. Well, thank you so much. Of course, it's my no, pleasure.
0: Thanks again to Jimmy for getting on. Before we leave, I want to say next week we're gonna have special one-year anniversary episode of height zone world um i won't tell you what it is but i think it's going to be real cool so we'll see you then